Isn't that beautiful? Am I on? Good morning. Man, it's so good to see you all this morning. What a beautiful testimony. Um, that was from our staff talking about the experience of Rooted. You have heard us talk for the last several months about this experience of discipleship that we've been exploring and trying to figure out if this would be a good thing for our church to go through. And really, Colin, I think it was probably about a year and a half ago, maybe, that we first started talking about Rooted and exploring it. And then we took our staff through the experience. And, uh, you know, it's funny. If anybody, if you'd say that, is anybody, you know, who in the church is discipled? Surely it's the church staff. But what our church staff discovered as they went through the process of Rooted was that there were areas of discipleship that Rooted shored up. And not just, I'll just say this to you, um, and it's not just the content of Rooted, because Christianity is not just about content. And of course, our faith has great content in it, and it's important that there's a sanctification of the mind. But so much of our sanctification, our transformation, uh, happens in community. It happens in relationship. And what Rooted does is it doesn't just give you more information, but Rooted pulls you into an experience of discipleship that happens in community, calls you to open your life up and your heart up to other people in a way that, frankly, is pretty unusual. And so our staff went through it, and to a person, you just heard from them this morning, to a person, they would say, there was something about that that, frankly, it transformed my life. And then we took a group of our leaders. How many of our leaders who are here in the room, we took a group of leaders through it. If you, you are in this room and you've been through Rooted, you're one of our leaders, uh, we took them through it, and you can talk to any of these folks. They'll say the same thing, that there were places of transformation that had not yet been touched by the Spirit, that somehow Rooted gave that to them. And now uh, we're throwing the doors open for the church to go through this. We have about 80 spots available for people to go through it. And uh, it'll meet, Rooted will begin, I think it said it launched on, it's launching on September 10. So that's a Sunday night right here at Grand Peak Academy, 4 to 6 p.m. So it'll be, we'll have kind of the inaugural session in here, and then we'll have breakout groups. And if you have littles, you have kids, uh, it's not a problem. We're going to have childcare available for you on Sunday nights. So please come. And I know that there are some of you that are here that you're like, yeah, discipleship, but what I really am longing for is relationship. And I'm not sure if I'm really part of this church yet. I feel like I'm an outsider to it. This is as powerful an experience of belonging to the body of Christ as you're likely to have. So immediately following the service, uh, Pastor Rory and the crew will be out there in Connect Central with iPads. You can get yourself you know, all signed up. And I really hope that you do. The spots are going to go very fast. And don't worry, once we get a, sort of our inaugural batch of people through it, uh, we'll relaunch it again until we can get the whole church through it. And we'll just kind of keep doing that until we decide to do something else or Jesus comes back. So there you go. So make sure to sign up for that after the service. If you're new with us this morning, so good to see your face. Uh, my name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor here, and it's a joy to have you in our house. I was on the front row this morning worshiping and just thinking about how much I love this church and how good it is to be in God's presence together. We had a little church picnic on Friday night. How many of you were at the church picnic at Black Forest Regional Park? Can we give, uh, give it up? Uh, to uh, Mandy and Jenna and Brandy and Linda Maple who helped make that possible. Such a good time. I love this church, and it's just good to be in the fellowship together. Good to be in God's presence. We're starting a series this morning uh, on the book of 1 Kings that we're calling Kings and Kingdoms. And this series will take us uh, all the way right up to Advent. 1 Kings, just in terms of, I'll give you a little bit of background and history, and then we'll jump right into the text of Scripture uh, First Kings really deals with the whole beginning kind of of the monarchy, the development of the monarchy in Israel. And so you might remember, if you remember your Old Testament history, 
that the Lord delivers his people up out of Egypt by the hand of Moses. And it was always the will of God that God would reign directly over his people as king. And of course, there would be prophets that would come and remind the people of God what God had said. And there would be priests who would help mediate the presence of God to the people of God. And there would be other leaders that would rise up in the midst of Israel that would help take care of the administration of the people of God. But God never desired for his people to have a human king over them. Just never did. You know why? Because God knows that singular individuals with a lot of power tend to be trouble. Can I get an amen from somebody? <laughs> and so he tries this for several centuries, actually. The Lord is reigning over his people through prophet and through priest and through judges, leaders of Israel that would rise up. And the last of the great judges of Israel was a man named Samuel. And Samuel's kids, when Samuel was coming to the end of his life, it looked like his kids were not exactly going to be able to take the reins for him. And so the people of God come to Samuel and they go, hey, enough of this whole, like, it's been kind of decent, you know, with the judges. And you're a pretty decent guy, Samuel. We like you a lot. But we don't really want to do it this way anymore. Can we have a king? Can we please have a king? We just really want a king. And Samuel knows in his bones that this is going to be huge trouble. And he takes it to the Lord. And he's like, Lord, they keep asking me for a king. They're bugging me so much about a king. What am I supposed to do? And the Lord says this to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 6. But when they said, give a king to us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, verse 7. And the Lord told him, listen to all the people that, are, that the people are saying to you. It's not you that they've rejected, but they have rejected who? It's not a rhetorical question if you're new. When I ask you, we got to talk back here. It's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Next verse. As they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So that's what they're doing to you, verse 9. Now listen to them. <laughs> I like this a lot. But warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who reigns over them will claim as his rights. And if you read the rest of that chapter, what you'll see is that Samuel goes through and basically says, hey guys, yeah, you're going to have a king and you're gonna, it's going to feel nice for like a second. And then this king is going to start acting badly and it's going to be trouble for you. And then you're going to cry out to the Lord in that day. And what we see in the book of 1 Kings is the unfolding of this history of troublesome, fail, failing, flawed kings in the midst of Israel. But the beautiful thing about the book of 1 Kings, and we'll see this throughout, is that even though we have these fallen, flawed, failing human kings, God remains king over his people and his purposes are exercised in the world, not just in spite of, but actually through these wicked people. And the final analysis, the story of the book of Kings is a story of the grace of God, which is a story of the entire scripture. I'm going to be in the book of 1 Kings chapter 1 before we open the scriptures together. Let us pray. Our God in heaven, whom have we but you? As the psalmist said, there is nothing on earth that we desire besides you. Our flesh and our heart might fail us, but God, you're the strength of our heart and you're our portion forever. And we thank you that already in the first 37 minutes here that we have been together, you've revealed that. You have showed yourself to be our portion and our strength. You've showed yourself among us to be our song and our deliverer, the strength of our lives. We thank you that even as we took songs of worship on our lips this morning, I just had this strong sense during worship 
that you were crushing the head of hopelessness and despair. Like you're teaching us to put on garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And that's every time your presence rushes in, every time your word rushes in, that's what it does. When I called, the psalmist said, you answered me, you made me bold and stout-hearted, and you're doing that again here and now. So we pray that as we open these scriptures and as we read them, we pray that they would explode with revelation and wisdom and insight, and that we'd find ourselves walking more deeply into the purposes of God. Teach us your ways, we are praying, so that we might walk in your paths, O God. Guide us in your truth and lead us for your God, our Savior. And our hope is in you all day long. May the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. The book of 1 Kings chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 5. And I'm going to read a lot of verses. And I'm going to read them fast. So you better buckle up here. Here we go. Now, Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward. This is a key part of this text. Everybody say, put himself forward. And he said, I will be king. And so he got chariots and horsemen ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. And his father had never rebuked him by asking, why do you behave as you do? He's also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. For all the bad things that the scripture is going to say about Adonijah, it is nice that they were like, he was a good looking chap. Adonijah conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and Abiathar, the priest, and they gave him their support. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, Nathan, the priest, Shimei, and Ray, and David's special guard didn't join Adonijah. Adonijah is like getting a little faction going here. And so Adonijah then sacrificed sheep and cattle, fat and calves of the stone of Zoleth, Nir, and Rogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he didn't invite Nathan. This is a problem. Or Benaiah or the special guarders, other brothers. So Nathan, and Nathan is this prophet who had been an advisor to David during his reign. So David goes to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, and says, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king? And our Lord David knows nothing about it. Now then let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go into King David and say to him, My Lord the king, didn't you not swear to me, your servant? Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? And while you're still there talking to the king, I will come in and add my word to what you have said. So, I'm going to stop real quick. One time when I was reading scripture real fast like this, I got done preaching and this kid came up to me and he was like, Pastor Andrew, have you ever thought about being a rapper? <laughs> Not until you said it. Second career. So Bathsheba went to see the aged king in his room where Abishag the Shunammite was attending him. Bathsheba bowed down, prostrating herself before the king. What is it that you want? The king asked. She said, my lord, you yourself swore to me, your servant, by the Lord your God, that Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. But now Adonijah has become king, and you, my lord, the king, don't know anything about it. And he sacrificed great numbers of sheep, cattle, fat, and calves of sheep, and has invited all the king's sons, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But he hasn't invited Solomon, your servant. My lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel looking to you to learn from you will sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him. Otherwise, as soon as my lord, the king, is laid to rest with his ancestors, I and my son will be treated as criminals. And then Nathan comes in in a few verses after this. Then he adds his word to what Bathsheba is saying. And then verse 28, jump down. King David said, call in Bathsheba. So she came into the king's presence, stood before him, and the king took an oath. Everybody say an oath. That also is going to be important later. Surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out, carry out to this very day what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. And then Bathsheba bowed down with her face to the ground. 
prostrating herself before the king. And she said, may the Lord King David live forever. And Nathan said, call in Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaiah son of Jehoiada. And they came before the king and he said, take your Lord's servants with you and have Solomon my son mount my own mule, the king's mule, and take him down to Gihon. And later there have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king Blow the trumpet and shout, long live King Solomon. Then you are to go up with him and he is to come and sit on my throne and reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah, brothers and sisters. This is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Thanks be to God. There is a crisis that is brewing here in Israel. David has reigned faithfully. He had been a shepherd of God's people for 40 years. And now he is getting, to go the, he is getting ready to go the way of all men. And one of the things that we learn about David when we read through the, book of fir, fir, the books of First and Second Samuel and then into First Kings is that whereas David in the early part of his reign, uh, his reign was very active. David was a warrior king. He was always on the front lines with God's people. But one of the things that you see, and you see this specifically in Second Samuel chapter 11, the great crisis of David's life, where Bathsheba actually enters the picture, the scripture says that in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, the times when king are do, kings are doing their job. Do you remember what happened with King David? He stayed home. And there was something, you see it in that moment of David's life, that there is like this dramatic slowdown in David's leadership. That he's like starts falling asleep at the wheel. He's not really paying attention to what's going on. And of course, the crisis that happened there, the Lord forgives him and restores him to leadership. But the pattern recurs straight throughout the rest of King David's reign that he's kind of like, he doesn't really know what's going on. He's not really paying attention. And now you see it come to a head in this first chapter of 1 Kings. Chapter 1, that David, kind of the sleepy, old, now impotent king, on the throne, not paying any attention. And all of a sudden, we have this guy, Adonijah, his son, rises up and goes, look, the old coot has been asleep at the wheel for a long time, and nobody around here appears to be the next in line. So how about me? I've been serving in David's army for a long time. Everybody knows me. The other guy got killed off. I'm pretty good looking. I could maybe like get the job done. And the scripture says this. It uses this very interesting word for Adonijah. It says that Adonijah mitnessed. Everybody say mitnessed. He exalted himself. And this whole crisis begins to emerge. Who really is in charge here? Who really is the king of Israel? And it's not until the king himself, King David, stands up and says, oh, no, 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 no. It's not going to be this guy. Adonijah, by the way, is getting ready to slaughter all of those people that won't sign up for his reign. That's why Bathsheba and Nathan and all those others are so scared. There is a crisis brewing in Israel precisely because somebody in Israel decided to mitnesseh. They decided to exalt themselves. And it's not until the true kingship begins to exert itself again that order is restored among the people of God. I want to ask you this question this morning. How much of the chaos of our world is a product of people exalting themselves? It's the first lesson that we learn from First Kings. Is that anywhere, anytime, human beings, mitnesseh, anytime they exalt themselves, we begin to have huge problems on our hands, causes chaos, not just among the people of God, but it causes chaos in our world. You might remember growing up, you know, on the playground, you'd be 
play in some game and somebody would say, well, you know, I'm the quarterback here is what they'd say. And you go, why are you the, why do you get to be the quarterback of the team here? You know what I mean? It causes chaos. A team is going to lose. You know, or you might remember when you were in college, you know, like the worst day for me, the worst day in any college class was when the professor was like, okay, and so we're going to break into groups and have group assignments and half of your grade rides on the group assignment, you know? And you get into that little group of four or five strangers and you have no relationship whatsoever with each other. And then some Adonijah in the middle of that group goes, hey, you know, I've got a lot of experience doing this kind of thing. I think I'll be, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to uh, be the boss here. You're like, you know that you're getting an F in that class. All the chaos of our world always results when people exalt themselves. My wife and I, Mandy and I, were watching a barbecue showdown on Netflix recently, just a delightful show, really fun, actually really fun show. And it, it got to this point in the, in the show where they had two teams, uh, like it's an individual competition, but on this particular week, they put people together in groups, it's like teams of two. And so there's this one group of guys and they were getting along pretty good, but then the group of girls was like a 30-year-old a Italian woman from Long Island and an African-American woman in her 70s, mama, you know, and she'd been doing it for a very long time. And the assignment was you had to come up with Thanksgiving dinner on the smoker, you know, and they did pretty good. These two girls did, the ladies figuring it out, what they're going to do with the turkey and the stuffing and the other things. And then they got to the yams. <laughs> and it was like, oh, no, you don't understand. I've been cooking these yams for 60 years, young lady. You know, and Long Island gal, she rises up and she's like, yeah, but you don't understand. I mean, I got some like, this is like, this recipe for the yams goes back many, many generations. And it came to like loggerheads over the yams. And you just, and Mandy and I are watching the show and the yam, the great yam crisis of the barbecue showdown. And we just went, these women, I don't even care what happens after this. They are going to lose. And do you know what happened? They both lost. I want to just suggest to you that the reason that something like that happens, the reason that you get the F on the group project and the reason that the football team on the playground and the reason that these two women lost on the barbecue show, it's actually written very deeply into the cosmos. <laughs> Part of the structure of God's world is that anytime you see self-exaltation, you have a calamity that's about to ensue. Think about the way the scripture talks about Satan himself, the angel of light who occupied God's heavenly court. Isaiah says of him, this is Isaiah chapter 14, uh, you said in your heart, I will, yeah, that's meant to say, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. You know, I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zephon. Next verse. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Verse 15, Isaiah says, but you're brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Anytime we try to exalt ourselves, there's a throwing down that takes place. It was the devil's envy of God's power that got him thrown out of heaven. And what's the first thing that he does when he comes, among, uh, comes down to us uh, here on planet earth? He goes to the man and the woman in the garden of Eden and he says, hey, do you know, I know that God said not to eat from this tree over here, but you know what God knows? He knows that if you eat this food, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so what do the man and the woman do? They eat the fruit. Why? Because they want to be like God. What are they doing? I will ascend. I will raise my throne. And what happens to the man and the woman is the same thing that happens to the Satan. 
Satan is cast out of heaven. They're cast out of the garden, wandering in exile. The pattern recurs all the way through human history. One of my favorite, I think this is an underappreciated verse of scripture and people need to preach on it more, but this is from 3 John. You've probably never read 3 John before. John is writing to Gaius, the elder, and he says this, you know, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who, say it real loud, church. <laughs> what a description. We don't know. Di- Diotrephes, you know, in the grand scheme of things, might have actually been a pretty decent guy, lots of good character qualities. But the one thing that Diotrephes is known for, Diotrephes who loves to be first will not welcome us, verse 10, And so when I come, I'm going to call attention to what he's doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so, and he puts them out of the church. Diotrephes mitnesses himself. He exalts himself in the midst of the church. And what happens to the church? Chaos. Scrambles the church. And I want to just say to you that wherever we have chaos in human relationships... It is because somebody is exalting themselves. That's why the writer of Proverbs says that if you drive out the mocker, the mocker is always a prideful person in the book of Proverbs. You drive out the mocker and out goes strife. Quarrels and insults will cease. Wherever we have the impulse to self-exalt, to self-glorify, you have chaos in the family of God. You have chaos. Think about those of you that have worked many decades. Think back on your working career. All of those great conflicts that you had in the marketplace, all of those great catastrophes that you had at your job, how did they come about? Because somebody was unyielding. Somebody kept exalting themselves. Some of you have been in the church for many decades, and you have seen the church, churches that you've been a part of, go through crisis after crisis after crisis. You get down into that crisis. You do the autopsy of that crisis, and I guarantee, and any one of you that has been through it, you'll say the same thing. That somebody in the midst of that was acting like Diotrephes. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes who loves to be first will have nothing to do with us. Mandy and I just celebrated 23 years of marriage last Sunday. I look back over that. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate that. We're going to keep it going. When I look back over the history of our relationship, every time... We have come to a crossroads every time we have come to some kind of loggerheads. It's because one of us is holding a position of pride that we will not let go of. If you have relational chaos, pride is somewhere in there. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first. And some of you, I just want to say this as a gentle pastoral rebuke to you this morning, and I'm also trying to help you. Some of you, you have relational chaos everywhere you go. And you keep looking around and going, well, it's got to be those people over there. Well, look at that. They're doing it again, you know. Well, you know, if I just got with the right group of people, you know, well, oh, gosh, here I am again, surrounded by idiots. It might be invitation to consider. It might be that the reason that you have all of that relational chaos is because you've got the spirit of Adonijah in you. And what you keep doing is you keep putting yourself first. You keep exalting yourself. You keep ascending in every situation. 
And you have all kinds of wonderful ways that you do it, ways that you disguise your pride and your arrogance. But at the end of the day, it's your way or the highway. And that is the reason that you are like serially alienating everybody in your life. Listen to what James, the half-brother of Jesus, says. He says, but God gives us more grace, which is why the scripture says that God opposes who? But what's he going to do? He shows favor to? Shows favor to who? Who are the humble? The humble are those who are willing to yield. The humble are those who are not fighting always to get their way. The humble are those who are always fighting, on the other hand, to make room for other people, to hear their opinion and to hear their desires, to consider what's going on with them, to put other people first. And the scripture says that that type of a person, that's the person that the favor of God falls on. By a show of hands, how many of you want the favor of God on your life? That ought to be 100%. I'm helping you out here. You want the favor of God on your life. The favor of God... Guys, it makes life flourish. It's not theoretical and it's not abstract. The favor of God is the blessing of God. The favor of God is the life of God. The favor of God is that thing that when you put it in the situation, it makes everything work. And the scripture says to us that when we get humble, when we become soft, when we become yielding, when we're not self-seeking, that's when the favor of God comes to us. Think about what Jesus says in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. Can anybody finish it in the house of God this morning? For they will what? See, the prideful think that the only way that they get the earth is by grabbing the earth and pulling it to them. And what does Jesus say? That the moment you get yourself to the place where you're willing to let it all go, you don't have to be first. The meek, what happens to them? They inherit the earth. Stop being so afraid that you're not going to get your share And that's where all the pride comes from, by the way. It's ultimately motivated by fear. You're just worried that there's not going to be anything left for you when all is said and done. And Jesus says, if you'll just let go of that whole thing, I promise you, you will get everything that you want and need out of life and the kingdom of God besides. Wherever there's chaos in our world, it's because somebody's exalting themselves. And so I want to say to you this morning that the spirit of Adonijah... And the spirit of Diotrephes has no place among the people of God. 9.56 this morning. Ah, He's coming off sabbatical. He's got a lot to say. It's got no place among the people of God. But then you might be saying, I really am going to try to wrap this up. You might be saying to yourself, but Andrew, what then of leadership? You know? Are you just saying that nobody should care at all about leadership and nobody should care that there are like appropriate people put in in appropriate spots to help lead the people of God or to help lead in business or the home or family or any of those things? I'm not saying that at all. Leadership is a gift of God. It's one of God's great gifts, actually, I think, to humanity, that when leaders lead in the fear of God, when they lead in a right spirit and out of a right heart, God's world flourishes in a way that it would not otherwise. We need leaders among the people of God, but the one requirement to begin even the process of thinking about leading is that you can't want to lead. (laughs) And have you ever noticed that in the scriptures? That the greatest of all of the leaders among God's people 
were never people that sought out leadership. Think about, just to take a couple examples from biblical history, think about Moses. Moses, who was driven out of Pharaoh's land. Moses is tending Jethro's sheep on the backside of Midian, the wilderness. Moses, who ran from the pleasures of Egypt and the power of Egypt and all of that. And there is Moses tending the flock of God. And that Moses is the guy that stands in front of the burning bush. And God calls him into the leadership of God's people. And Moses, remember this in Exodus 3 and Exodus 4. Moses keeps saying to the Lord, Lord, I don't, you, don't, you got the wrong guy, but not me. There's somebody else that could do this thing. And God's like, the very, like you saying that to me is why I want you to do this. You know what I mean? All through, in fact, the scripture says of Moses that Moses was a humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. And it was that humility, that yieldedness that fitted him to lead God's people. Or think about David. When David is anointed the king of Israel, do you remember? Samuel goes to Jesse and all of these sons of Jesse come and they're all good looking and charming and putting themselves forward, right? And then there is little David tending the flock of his dad out there in the wilderness somewhere. And when Samuel sees him, the guy who's not seeking power, the guy who's not seeking influence, the guy who doesn't want to be in charge, Samuel looks at him and goes, here's the horn of oil, pour it over his head. This is the king of Israel, or you think about in this text, the next king of Israel, Solomon, what is he doing during this whole time? Reading books or something? Little introvert studying over here, you know? And that's the, that's the king. You have to get this. You have to get this. The lust for power is one of the most disordering influences in the world that we live in. Usually that desire for power, it's motivated by this self-protecting kind of thing. And if you wish to lead among God's people, you actually have to give that whole thing up. You got to let it all go. The great monk of the 14th century, Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Kempis, put it like this. He said that no man can appear safely before the public eye unless he first relishes obscurity. And no man can safely speak unless he loves to be silent. No man safely rules unless he is willing to be ruled. And no man safely commands unless he has learned well how to obey. I'm going to tell you why you cannot lust for power. I'm going to tell you why you can't have the desire to be in charge in your heart. I think that there are probably a thousand reasons for this. I've watched this over and over again in the course of my ministry career. My time as a pastor, I've seen this. What I have learned is that those people who lust for power, this is the reason that you can't want it. The reason that you lust for power is because you're trying to shore up something in yourself. You're trying to address a fear. You're trying to address an insecurity. You're trying to address something in you that is not right. And do you know what that means? All of those people that you rule over, you will use them to serve yourself and they will feel it. And that is the absolute antithesis of the life of God. Think about what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10. It's a whole dispute raging among the disciples. Who's the greatest among us? And who's going to sit at your right hand? And who's going to sit at your left in your glory? And Jesus says, you know that the kings of the Gentiles do that. 
They lord the authority over other people, and those who do that, they call themselves benefactors. But Jesus says, you are not to be like that. But instead, the greatest among you will be your... Does anybody know it? The greatest among you will be your servants. And the one who rules among you will be like the one who serves. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The reason that we love and worship King Jesus is because King Jesus is not about himself. The ruler of the universe came among us, took a body, poured out his life unto death for us. He never sought himself, which means that he can be trusted with all authority and all power in heaven and on earth. And we are not like him until we do the same. You can't seek power. You can only seek service. And the good news is that when we seek service, power comes to us and we don't even notice it. (laughs) We can be trusted with it because we're seeking the glory of God and the good of other people first. And so you can't have the spirit of Adonijah and you can't have the spirit of Diotrephes and you gotta have the spirit of service. That's what fits you to lead among God's people. And then I wanna end with this and with this we'll begin to make the turn into communion. What do we do when there is chaos in leadership at any level of human society? (laughs) What do we do when there's chaos in leadership in our families? What do we do when there's chaos in leadership in the church? What do we do when there is chaos in leadership in society? What do we do? And Bathsheba models it for us. Look at this, 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 16. Bathsheba, the scripture says, bowed down, prostrating herself before the king. What is it that you want? King David asked her. And she said to him, my Lord, say it real loud, church. You yourself swore to me, your servant, by the Lord your God, that Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. Do you know what the name Bathsheba means? It means daughter of the oath or daughter of the promise. And Bathsheba sees that there is a crisis in leadership brewing in Israel. And what does she do? She goes to the true king and she appeals to the promise. And as Bathsheba appeals to the promise of God before the true king, the true king remembers the promises that he has made to her and to the rest of Israel and installs the rightful king in that situation and restores order. Friends, when there is chaos in leadership, what do we do? We become like Bathsheba. We lift up our eyes We lift up our hearts and we lift up our voices and we appeal to the promise of God. We don't take the reins of authority ourselves. We don't try to rectify it with human power and might, but we say, God, remember your word. God, remember the promises that you've made to us. God, remember what you've said that you would do among us. And we trust that God will make things right in his own way and in his time. And I'm saying to you this morning, that this book of 1 Kings comes to us at a wonderfully apt moment in history because right now, I don't know if you've noticed this, there is a crisis brewing at every level of leadership of human society right now. Families in chaos, churches in chaos, 
government and business in chaos. And the problem goes beyond, you've heard me say this again and again, and I will say it until I have no more breath in my lungs. The problem goes beyond right and left. And it goes beyond liberal and conservative. It's a matter of the heart. The problem with our society is that we've got Adonijah and Diotrephes running around making chaos. And the only way that we get out of it is by appealing to the promise of God and humbling ourselves before God. And so church, as we prepare ourselves to come to the table of the Lord, would you stand this morning? And I'm gonna invite us just to enter into a moment of intercession here. Would you take hands with the person next to you, actually? Scripture says that wherever two or three come together in agreement, the power of the Lord is there to bind and to loose, to bring about the kingdom of God. And so this morning, Lord God, we come together as your people. We come together just like Bathsheba, with the promises of God in our hearts. And we look around at the world that we live in and we see chaos raging everywhere. Chaos at every level of government. I hear it more and more from people. It's so corrupt, I don't know who to trust anymore. That is a problem. And I hear it in businesses. We scandal in business leadership every single day. And God, it breaks your heart. It breaks your heart to see it happen in the church. It feels like every single day some new great leader has fallen, some new crisis in a denomination is brewing. And it's because the spirit of Adonijah and the spirit of Diotrephes is raging in us. And so we say, first of all, as we have our hands joined in your presence, we say, crush that spirit among us. Drive out pride. Drive out arrogance. Drive out self-seeking among the people of God and establish us as your holy, humble people. And then we also pray that you would release your spirit in a fresh way across this land. That we'd see folks rise up who are trustworthy because they're humble. They're trustworthy because they have integrity. They're trustworthy because they sought the good of other people first. Would you do that in our families, in our marriages, in our churches, in government and society? Grant it, we pray. We ask that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done in a fresh way in this land, just like it is in heaven. And we remember before you, Lord Jesus, that on the night that you were betrayed, you took the bread and you broke it and you gave it to your disciples and you said, take it all of you and eat. This is my body. It's broken for you. Do it whenever you eat it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, you took the cup saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, Jesus. You not only modeled this among us, so you didn't seek your own glory, but you were appointed by the Father to be the king of the universe. And you modeled pouring out your life unto death. And so we pray this morning that as we come to the table, that the power of your life would be released among us, transforming us again into your image. Grant that, we ask, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said.